important. What we're trying to say here is that there are some things in Scripture that are, they're not more important than each other, but not all truth is created equal, if I can put it that way. Not all truth is created equal. Some truth is contextual uh, to the time, uh, but some truth is uh, non-contextual. It's always true in every application all the time. And so what I've been doing over the last few months is highlighting some scriptures um, that are important and um, in, in CSS code, which is uh, the, the stuff behind websites. When you put those tags there, um, whatever's between those tags takes priority out of everything else. So you get the gist of what we're saying. Okay, I hope you're up to that. All right, last week I introduced, this is a second part of a two-part series, and this is one of those weird messages. Um, if you've been here a while, you know I don't often do the money message, for example. Uh, I like to treat things in proportion to which Scripture t- teaches things. Um, but this is a weird one because this is one of those messages that's like, uh, it's not awkward, but it's like, the guy is the guy in charge telling those who aren't in charge what to do. But I, but I, I need to have a number of hats on today because um, I, I wear a leadership hat around here. I also wear a teaching hat. I also wear a, this is my church, these are my people, these are my friends hat. And I've also got a volunteer hat. Okay, so I wear all those hats. It's, it's weird being in ministry and, uh, um, because it's not just your church. It's your workplace when you're a pastor and it's your friendship base. Uh, and it's your church, and it's also the place you serve voluntarily. So it's a weird thing. Um, so I'll, I've got to move a little bit between hats today, but I want to give you what is a solid biblical idea of how this whole show, how show is supposed to run. So last week we looked at purpose and the fact that uh, passion, uh, these days people often use passion as the rudder for destiny. They say if you're passionate about something, that's your purpose. Um, but it's, it's a slight inversion because um, if we did what we're just passionate about, uh, passion is much more of an output than an input um, in that sense. Passion is not the director of your destiny. Passion is what comes when you're operating in your destiny. It's the other way around. And, and purpose and the workmanship of your life is better derived from what you know to be important and investing yourself in that. When you do that and you're wrestling that part of your life, passion comes from that. So it's an output, not an input. So we went into that at length last week. And even authors like Simon Sinek, if you listen to Simon's stuff, he's a great author in organisational health and such, talks about the fact that passion is an output of purpose when you're invested into that which you believe in. So in Ephesians 3, Paul's talking about purpose. He says, look, the intent of all of this is that God be glorified through us to the heavenly realms. There's a spiritual realm going on out there that's asked an eternal question, and that question, basically, if we brought it all down, is, is God enough? Is God sufficient? Is God God? That's the question that's rattling around up there, and the evil one challenged that question. And then when we see Genesis 1, and, uh, or Genesis 3 particularly, where Satan confronts Adam and Eve and says, is God God? Is God enough? He's worried about you. You can't be like him, and so on. It's all derivation of that same question, is God enough? And that, that's been echoing through. And in, Genesis, in Ephesians 3.10, Paul says God's intent for us is to demonstrate through our life what he calls the manifold wisdom of God. That's the reason we exist. Incredibly profound thing to delve into. But a manifold, if you understand engineering or mechanics, a manifold is where you often have one intake and it will spread out into multiple. So one becomes many. That's a manifold. That's what that means. So God is love. God is good. But we are the manifold wisdom of that because wisdom is the application of truth in life. So we are the manifold wisdom 
of God. That's the reason we exist. And every one of us looks different. We all have different grace apportioned to us, as we'll see today. But all put together, if we're not operating as individuals, if we're operating as a church together, we are the manifold wisdom of God. And we're declaring the truth when we get it right, because there's nothing like the local church when the church gets it right. There's few things worse than when we get it wrong. But when we get it right, the manifold wisdom of God and the universe declares God is sufficient, God is enough. Incredibly profound stuff. But that doesn't normally motivate us for life because few of us wake up in the morning and go, how can I be the manifold wisdom of God? Okay, so now if you want to catch up on all that, that's last week's message. So now we're moving on to how does that work in the mechanics of a, of a church in Brisbane? How does that work in your life? What role do you play in that? So I'm going to begin, uh, in, we're in Ephesians 4, and I'm going to start at the end of the passage, verse 16 and 17, and then we're going to bounce back up to the top. But he starts off by saying, from him being God, from God, the whole body, that's, and that's not just all of us. When Paul's talking, he's talking to the church of Ephesus, not so much the church at Ephesus. So he's not talking to the church at Kenmore. He's talking to the church in Brisbane. So we are one portion of that. We're an expression of that, one context. But he'd be, he'd be referring to the whole city, all of God's people. From him, the whole body, joined together and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. Interesting phrase. The church is meant to grow itself up in love, even though it's, Jesus said, I will build my church. Now we're seeing a paradox here. The church grows itself up. But only as each part does its work. That's the manifold coming together into one. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. That's the underline for me there, that we no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Why does he say that? Because we've got to live lives amongst, when he's saying Gentiles there, he's saying the non-sacred Jews as he saw them. He's saying everyone else out there who runs to a different agenda, they have no God framework, um, they, they haven't been brought up under the Ten Commandments, they have no idea who Yahweh is. Those guys are living according to a whole different matrix of, of importance for their life. He's saying, don't do that. The trouble is we're living in, that, in the same city as the other million people who aren't believers are. And somehow we've got to eke out a living, we've got careers and businesses and all the things that we do. But while we're living amongst that, not to be like that, not to have the same value set, not to prioritise the same things. Don't live as the Gentiles do. Okay, let's bounce back to verse 1. He says, From prison, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. So he's establishing his credence in this. He's saying, look, this is Ephesus. I'm in jail now, guys, because of what we've been, what we've been up to together. I've given my life to this thing. And because of that, believe me when I say this is what I'm prepared to die for this. I'm prepared to live for this. This thing really matters. Do what I've done. Live a life worthy of this calling that you've received. Now, I put those two bookends together. Live a life that's worthy of the calling. And then at the end, don't live as the Gentiles do. In other words, what he's about to describe is a life worthy of the calling that's been placed on our life as the manifold wisdom of God. All right, so our life holds a whole different set of priorities. So let's begin to piece some biblical ideas together around how you find your place in that. It's not a full explanation, um, but it's just going to be one facet taken straight from this scripture. So let's have a look at how a bunch of people like us do this and how it works in a church. So I'm going to really try and explain what a biblical model of how a church works, how this is all supposed to work. Works. So let's pick it up in verse 11. He says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers 
Right, so he says that he's talking there about the leadership and governance model of the day. Now, the fivefold ministry, and, and we hear a lot these days, there's still a lot of conversation about these things, the five other apostles today, and so on. We're not going to focus so much on the labels. I think it's, and it's certainly not good for a guy like me to put a label on myself. It's for other people to do that sort of stuff if, if it makes it easier for them. But he's talking there about the leaders of this whole thing called the church. Those guys and girls are to equip the people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. In other words, we won't become mature if we don't do this. If, they, if those leaders don't equip God's people, then we don't become mature. And so in his own language, later we get blown about by to and fro by every wind of doctrine. So it says the whole idea is their role is not to do the ministry. Their role is to equip all of us for ministry. So we all reach unity in the faith, in the knowledge of the Son of God, become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Interesting turn of phrase there, the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We talked last week about, he said, the only way you can receive the fullness of God's fullness, a weird expression, the fullness of the Spirit, is if we have a, a supernatural revelation of the love of God. In other words, we see him as he is. We know him as he truly is. We'll never figure it out on our own. We even need his help to do that. When you get that, only then can you, you be filled to the fullness. But when we're doing that, we're all growing in maturity together. So God started this whole thing, kick-started it in the book of Acts chapter 2 and began building the church with these various roles of apostles, prophets, evangelists and so on. Uh, much of the, the work that they did back then continues today. There's still prophetic voices, still evangelists and so on. But we use all sorts of different names now as well as movements have sort of come and gone and they're talking about function, not importance. That's the important thing. Uh, you might call yourself an apostle or a prophet but you're no more important than the person who does the vacuuming around here. There, there is no hierarchy in the kingdom when it comes to value and importance. So the person who's hospitable and gives mercy is just as important as a kingdom as someone who would call themselves an apostle or prophet. So we have different names now like rectors and vicars and pastors and ministers and team leaders. And I once had a guy who was a head of his church, he called himself an, a cultural architect. That was on his business card. Whatever, man. What is, what is interesting is that the, the main deal here is that Paul's saying all of those people, their role is really simple. It's to equip the rest of us. Now I've got my volunteer hat on. Now I've got my normal I'm a Christian Pat hat on. Their role is to equip me and you to do ministry. That's it. So if I'm a prophet, if there was a capital P prophet around these days, what's happening when they've done their job? Are they getting up and saying, thus saith the Lord? No. They're creating a prophetic community. That's their job, is to equip the people to do the works of service. It's not about the person with a capital P or a capital A or whatever it is. It's about the people being equipped and built up in that ministry. And it's a, this is a big deal. Um, the whole Reformation hinged on part of this. Martin Luther, you know, he nailed this to the wall. And he, and he, would, he wrote volumes on the fact that the maidservant and the, and the manservant are just as valuable in their works of service unto God for society as the Pope is. The Pope didn't like that, but the maidservants loved that. You know, so he was saying there's, a, there's no, this is a level playing field here. And so Paul goes on and says this, this leadership is to equip. Interesting word, equip. It's not used a lot in the New Testament. Katartismos is the root word of that, and it means to perfect or complete or to make whole. It's the same word used in uh, Matthew 4 talking about 
James and John were, were repairing nets when Jesus came to find them. They were mending them together. They were making a net. And they were, so they were repairing and preparing the people, the nets. But our job is to repair and prepare the people. So, so the ministry, this is in Christendom, old school, the minister, the vicar or whoever it was, they were sort of paid to do the, the job. They did the ministry. So everyone sort of came to church and listened to them do ministry. And they, through the week, were having cups of tea and doing all the stuff. This scripture is speaking directly against that. It's saying that's, you don't pay someone to do the work of ministry for us. Their role is to equip all of us to do the work of ministry. That's a much better deal because now there's, in our church, a few hundred of us, not just one person doing the work of ministry. So he says it's to perfect, complete, to make whole, and we don't do the ministry that matters most, um, and you don't delegate your, your calling, your destiny to us uh, as if it's somehow our calling to do that. So part of leadership then is to show a vision of what that picture looks like. Put it this way, it's, it's almost like if we're all parts of a jigsaw, it's like I've got the jigsaw puzzle here for a moment and there's thousands of pieces in there and I pour it out on the table and then my role as a leader, particularly on a Sunday, is to put the box up and show you the picture and go, it's got to look like that. But I'm also a jigsaw part as well, so I get to be parts in the puzzle as well. But someone has to get up and say, here's what we're aiming at, guys. The picture, the vision looks like this. And so that's what chapter 3 was all about. Paul's talking about the, the whole reason we do this is so that all when we all come together and do it well, God is glorified. And so I get to see this all week. I'm a very blessed to do, be able to do that, but I get to see the jigsaw play its part all week. You know, if I ever need a brain break from what I'm doing, I'll, I'll just hang around the cafe in here for 10 minutes through the week and you, just get, you get to see it all going on. Because all of you guys, I see you, they're all having cups of coffee, there's divine appointments happening, there's, there's pastoral visits going on, all this stuff is happening, unorganised, unstructured. People aren't being paid to be a pastor, they're just being pastoral because they have that gift. That's such a massive difference in that. You come in here on a Sunday morning at 7am, I get here about then, the worship team's already here, setting up, dialing in, practising, doing all the stuff. Kids workers are out there getting ready, training. Ministry leaders are dreaming of ways to grow people. Our elders are working, you know, meticulous detail, endless hours, you know, on, on stuff that you'll never see, that you'll never know, that you'll never have to worry about because they do all that. And, then, and there's so many hours going in to make this whole thing go on. But with so much diversity, what's, that's going to mean, because all of us are a little bit on the broken side, there's going to be challenges. The gears aren't going to always mesh. It's going to grind somewhat. So Paul's really understanding with that. You know, he says, look, when you're in such close proximity for so long and there's so much going on and the heat's, the heat's dialed up and things are changing all the time, he says, look, verse 2, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Because churches, every church, this church, every church, hits a wall. And some churches, it's more obvious than others that we, we hit this cap of what we're able to do. And sometimes we say that cap is hitting numerically. But, but not all settings where there's lots and lots of people are necessarily what Paul's talking about here with church. It's, it's more an, an event um, than it is people interacting and engaging and using their gifts. It's we're all turning up and doing a thing. But when it comes to the, heart, the cut and thrust of a church like ours, it's, it's, uh, it's going to rise and fall on the level of our ability to do relationships well. And that makes it tough. So Paul says you've got you to work real hard to keep that bond of, of peace. 
Because uh, if, if our unity together here, or any church, is, is based on the fact that we agree about everything, uh, we're going to fail. It's going to fall. Because uh, as soon as we disagree, which is inevitable, uh, it gives us a reason to fracture and, and go somewhere else. But if it's based on peace, we will prevail. So Paul follows this up and he, and he says, look, you've got to realise, even though we're all different and we're all going to grind ourselves a bit, there are some things that are primary. And he talks about it throughout this passage. He says, you know, look, there's one body. These are the things that unite us. There's one body here. There's one spirit. There's one hope. There's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism. All the things that really matter, there's only one of those. But then in verse 7, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So there's individual grace in that manifold wisdom. So there's one of all the things that matter, but on everything else, we can be diverse as Christ proportions grace. So let's dial back to how this really works in practice. Verse 11, Christ gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers to equip people for works of service so that the whole body of Christ may be built up. So you know, some people think leaders exist to do all the ministry. Some people think leaders exist to just direct traffic. But, but somewhere in between, there's this whole idea of, of equipping. And I don't know, if you've been here more than five minutes, you realise we're, we're an equipping church. It's all about formation, discipleship, uh, uh, training for ministry, all that sort of stuff. That's why we're starting a college here next year. So my role is not to add numbers to this church. So it wouldn't be great if we had 5,000 people here. I'm actually, I don't care. I, I, I'm not interested in numbers. I'm interested... I'm interested in fulfilling the role that we have as a church and my role as a minister, which is to equip you guys to do the ministry that only you can do. I, I made it, it wasn't a deal, but it was just an, a, an MOU with God, a memorandum of understanding. Father, if I'm going to come and do this thing, uh, you said you'll build the church. I'll build one person at a time. And that's all I want to do. Whatever happens or doesn't happen, the growth is up to him, but we'll break our backs to, uh, to grow you. So what that means in essence is that you become the ministers. You're all, congratulations, you're all ordained for ministry. There's, what that means in, 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 in a true, in solid theology is that there's no such thing in Scripture that says there can be a spectator in church, a consumer, uh, an occasional visitor. That mindset's just not there. I know we all go through transitions where we're looking for new churches and we all go through those difficult moments. But at the end of the day, somewhere you say, this is going to be my tribe. This is the jersey. I'm, I'm just putting it on. They're imperfect, but these are my people. Because once you find your people, then you've taken the first step of finding purpose. You don't find purpose and then look for a people. You find your people and that's where you find your purpose. Because you know, it's interesting, sometimes over the 20 years I've been a minister, never here, never here, I don't ever hear these things, but sometimes elsewhere you'll hear things like, we don't do enough mission or pastoral care. You know, it's like this church is missing solid teaching. Or, um, I, but my retort has become over the years, well, are you, are you on mission? You know, are you visiting people? And invariably it's interesting, the people who, who push those lines, often their answer is no, because I've never found anyone yet who's on mission who criticises the church for not having enough missional work. I've never found anyone yet who's out pastoring and caring for people complain about pastoral care in a church. So there's something about having skin in the game. Sometimes you get people say, you need a better youth ministry. Well, are you offering to help? Well, no. Well, unless there's skin in the game, there's no conversation to be had. We've all got to be invested here. And so our church is here to equip that so that we can, we can do all that. We're here 
preparing and repairing us. And, and so even next week, we've got a, a workshop on uh, Saturday, Ripple Effect. If, if you don't know how to share your faith, if it's that awkward conversation where, you, you know those times where a God moment just comes up, you've been waiting for 10 years, and suddenly, oh, if I knew what to say, I could sort of come in here. It's, it's for that. This is to teach us how to pray for our people that we know over years sometimes. And then when, when those divine moments just come, you know what to say relationally, lovingly and caringly, but it's just a clear way to explain the Scripture in your sort of terms. That's on here in, uh, next Saturday morning. But next year, we've also got formation year starting, which is going to be huge. Uh, I went into that last week. We've got leader tracks starting where we equip a new generation of leaders. There's a whole bunch of stuff that we're investing, the best of what we got, the best of what we've learned into equipping a whole new generation of leaders. But here's how it looks in the end, and this is the important part. This is the thing that matters. Verse 16, from him, from God, the whole body, that's all of us, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. If there's no love, it doesn't work. I mean, if you go right through 1 Corinthians, all the gifts, all the stuff, he talks about all this, but then he says in chapter 13, if there's no love, guys, it's not going to work. So love's the only driver that's going to make this deal work. And if you, don't, if you don't love the idea of church, and you've got you've to fight for it. You know, sometimes you've got to fight for this whole thing of church because when it goes well, it's awesome. When it's not so good, it's really tough. Um, but if you don't love the idea of church, if you don't love your church and love your people, uh, every action, every uh, request to get involved is going to be a real effort. It's going to be really hard. But if you love your church, the smallest thing, and I mean by small, I don't mean short, I mean most humble thing, the vacuuming, the chairs, the toilets, all that kind of, it, even doing that becomes such an honour to be able to do that. It's, it's just a matter of the heart. It only works if the church grows and builds itself up in love and as each part does, it, as each part does its work. My confession this morning was, and it was a tough confession, but, you know, there are days I don't like my job, to be honest. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm as introverted as the next guy. Uh, my relational intelligence quotient's not my highest factor. Uh, HR, I find really hard, all that sort of stuff. And you've got to deal with some hard situations and some difficult people and, and, you know, it's challenging. And if you don't love the church, and I see, I've got this fundamental core value that there is nothing like the local church. It's the grandest endeavour the world has ever seen. And it, and it requires and deserves and it's an honour to give the very best on the hardest day to push through and just keep going. We never give in. But I admit, when I was in business and I used to run my own company, I've started a couple, you know, it was easier. But when I was doing that, and this is just my little story, it's not, it's not everyone's story. Does anyone remember the stories in the, um, from the old war times, the wars of the last hundred years, where prisoners of war, they would, they would get them out of their cells and they'd get them to just dig a hole, just all day just slave away and dig a hole. And it would take them days to do this. And then at first for the prisoners, it was sort of good because, oh, it's better than doing nothing. At least I'm digging a hole, you know. But then they, the, the guards would say, now fill it in. And so that hole, it took them days to, they've got to fill this thing in again. And then they'd have to dig another hole. And then they'd have to fill that hole in. And in the end, it, it drove them insane because there was nothing more futile than just digging a hole and filling this hole. They were just shifting dirt from here to there, you know. And for me, my life became like that. I was just shifting piles of dirt. And I was working really hard at it. I was actually even really good at it. And I was getting rewarded for it. I was making a decent money out of it. But at the end of the day, when I look at it through the lens, I was just shifting piles of dirt. And we've got to take a good look at our life. There's nothing wrong with shifting piles of dirt, but we're made for more than just dirt. 
See, in Genesis 1, we are made from dirt. We are made from soil. And we're, and, but we weren't alive until the breath of God came and came into that dust and that dust and that breath come together and it makes you. But we're not us, we're not who we're meant to be in the absence of the dust or in the absence of the breath. But when you've tasted the breath of God in your life, dust will never satisfy. Dust will only be meaningful in our life. The dust of our life, the dirt piles that we're all moving to some extent are meaningless unless the breath of God comes in there and gives some sort of reason and love and overflow in our life so that even our dirt piles are missional. Even our dirt piles are our destiny. Because I'll shovel the dirt. I don't mind doing as long as I know God's in it. God's got to be in this dirt somewhere. And so I was always sort of okay doing it if I had this sense of destiny that God's called me to shift this dirt pile. Because I knew in that dirt pile somewhere, there's going to be a lost soul that I can influence. There's going to be a cause that I can grow. I'm going to be bettering society in some way. As long as I know there's some breath in the dirt, it's okay. But we've got to ask that question now and again with our life. Am I just shifting piles of dirt or is the breath of God in there with me? And it pays to confront it. This is why I brought it here at the end of this series. It's important. It belongs in the brackets. We've got to confront this and go, is my, have I given my life to shifting dirt or has God called me to that and how do I know? Because I don't mind where people work for God. And, and for my, most of us, our calling is not inside the, the walls of a church day to day. It's out there in the world because we've, we've got to work in that world. We've got families to support and mortgages to pay and cars to fuel up, all that sort of stuff. We've all got that. There are people out there that can't get saved unless you're doing what God's called you to do. But we've just got to make sure we're doing it. If I'm called out in the business, great. So how do I know? I'll know because I'm praying for the people that I work with. I'll be the first one there in the morning. I'll be the last one there at night. They'll be, they'll be seeing that I'm doing my very best to honour my employer. They'll see that I work harder than anyone else to keep the peace and, and, and make this thing work, but I'm praying for salvation. I'm showing love and grace that I mean it. I'm not just saying, oh, I'm called to work in the business world. No, I'm, I'm called to be a missionary out in the business world. I'm doing this for a reason. And if my calling is to make a load of money, then I'm, then I'm using that for God's purposes, not just buying another house. And we've got to look at our dirt piles and go, is this dirt pile worth it? And for me, it was until it wasn't. It was until God said, I'm done with that dirt pile. Now I need you to get into the church world and start stop, start stop, stop being part of the problem and be part of the answer and add some leadership in there. So it's been an honour to do that. But don't be trapped at this point in saying that your destiny and your calling and your purpose is defined to a job description or a place. Because your calling is not what you do. Your calling is who you are. Your calling is who God is making you to become. It's a trajectory in your life and it's, it's, it's a being. You are the calling in your life. So it doesn't matter where you are. Are you being God's person in that setting is the important thing. All right, we better move on. How do, how do you make all this work? How do you make all this work? This is something I had to come to. The, everyone knows around here I have a midlife crisis about every 18 months to 24 months. So I have to reconsider direction all the time. It's just part of this weird brain that I've got. But So I have to go through this process again and again. So, so how do you do that? How do you discern what's my part to play in this body of Christ uh, here, if this is your tribe, or wherever God's got me? First thing you've got to do, I find, is that you've got to agree that you're part of the body of Christ. There's no lone wolf. There's no, I've had enough. There's no, I'm just popping in. There's no, I gave God my years and now I'm sick of the church thing. 
eh. That, that's, that's not valid in Scripture. It just doesn't. I understand it. I had my time out of church world too. Nothing drives you crazy like a church that's screwed up and, and when you've got a bad attitude. Like, I know. I know. And, I, and it's normally it's my attitude that's, that's worse than, than whatever's going on. But now and again, God just brings you back and you go, okay, whatever, man. I hear the arguments. But at the end of the day, you are part of the body of Christ. You're not going to be who you're fully made to be. Your meaning and purpose of life is not going to be fulfilled unless you, you recognise you're one part of a jigsaw. The jigsaw is incomplete without you and you're far from complete without it and we're part of this thing. And uh, at some point, you've just got to square this away because this affects your life plans and your priorities and we understand that Christianity includes this thing called church. And at somewhere, in some place, in some context, I've got to put that jersey on. And I don't care if it's a big church, small church, our church or a house church. It doesn't matter as long as you say, Where am I, where's my tribe? Because I need them as much as they need me. And I'm going to put that jersey on. Because when you find your people, you've found your purpose. So that's the first thing, to square that one away. Agree that you're part of the body of Christ. And the next one was, for me, the big one. It's just to base my commitment in surrender and prayer. It's just to come to God surrendered. It's not about them anymore. It's not about the imperfection or any of that. It's a, this, is, this is between you and me, God. And I'm just going to put all of my life on the table here with this because it's all or it's nothing. And say, so you, you don't put your conditions on whatever he may ask you to be about. You don't ask first, what's my area of best fit? What's my DNA profile? What's my shape? What's my Enneagram? You don't start with that. That's the last thing. You start with, Lord, where do you want me? Who are my people? And what needs to be done? Because often it's a bit of a smoky trail. You, can't, you don't start by defining it. You start by being who you are because who you're, you're calling will come out with who you are, wherever you are, and you'll find you'll, you'll just keep gravitating to who God's designed you to be. But it's not always obvious on the way in. I actually became a minister. I don't know how I ended up with this job in the end, but um, I was in business. I was an engineer. I was a graphic artist, a web designer. I've done all sorts of things. Um, in the end, they offered me a job to be a pastor. And I, just, I said yes before they actually gave me any clue about what, I was, what that meant or what I was supposed to do. I just said yes because the senior, the senior guy there said, you want to do that? I went, okay. I thought it was going to be cleaning toilets, taking out the rubbish and doing the garden. And that would have been fine. Uh, but you don't start by defining what it's supposed to look like. So you, you agree that you're part of the body of Christ and you base your commitment to that in surrendered prayer. And the third bit is you just make a faith decision to play your part. You know, the thing that kept me out of ministry uh, was my lack of faith that I would have what it takes to be of any use in God's kingdom. I had no faith. I was happy to do whatever I could, I could find to do, but I just didn't believe I'd be able to survive church world because it's, it's different to business. You know, it's a, it's a different way of playing life. And so for me, I had to, it had to be a faith decision that even though you, you feel completely inadequate, you feel totally unqualified, and you know there's going to be stuff coming at you that you can't possibly do in your own strength. You just say yes anyway because Christ is the one who's sufficient and he gives you everything that you need in whatever context he calls you to be in. So we give it a go. So we make a faith decision to play a part. Around here, that could be things as humble as setting up the chairs in the morning, which I'd, I'd love to do that as a calling, to be honest. I find such great joy doing that. But it might be doing kids' work uh, you know, once a month. It could be uh, being in the band. It's just... Whatever, just give everything a go. And while we're in the middle of that, you know, there's always an out clause in there. Let God direct you 
and lead you so that the real you comes out in that, but let it be a bit of a journey and, uh, and just have a go. Every one of us can input something. I just believe everyone who calls this their home, there's something to do. I recognise too that many of us, and uh, maybe more so in the morning crowd because it's a, there's a few more elderly that come, or there's a lot, a lot of people who are incredibly busy, full-on careers, business life, the whole thing. Um, kids, activities, music, sports, that's all going on. And they're, they're incredibly busy. So what I, what I would say to that is make your, make your service to come. This is a sacrifice, coming. But it does way more than you would ever imagine because your presence in the room matters to those who come. Because it's showing how much you honour this place of God's worship. It shows how much you honour the other people by being a part and being present and you're giving the best of your time to come to what we're offering to God together. It says, these, it says to others who are coming in, you know, this matters enough that everyone turns up and if it matters to them, it must matter. It's incredibly important and we have actually one of the highest attendance rates per regular attender of our church than any other church in Queensland. It's an incredible honour and gift to have that. For our size of role, how many people come. Our online presence, no one turns up. No one looks at us online. All the churches that have been hanging around 50 years think we're a joke because no one turns up online. I say, that's because they don't want to watch us online. They want to come. Our ratio of people who are part of this church compared to who comes on a Sunday is sky high because it matters what happens. This is a non-downloadable environment. You can't get it online. This synergy of faith that happens when we all come together and we know anything's possible, God can do anything and he probably will. You can't get that online. You can't spectate the kingdom. So for this stage of our history, I'm not a, I'm not a huge online church guy and everyone thinks I'm mad, but whatever. If you want to get into that ministry, we'll, we'll, let, we'll let you run it for us. So make, make attendance a sacrifice of your praise because it matters. And if you can only do one thing, I'll tell you, this, this matters more to me than, than you can imagine is just to come. And if you haven't got time to do any other ministry through the week, come here on a Sunday. Find one person that you don't know that well, just one, and and invest, for for God's sake, five minutes with that person and just hear a bit of their story and show them how much they matter because that's church. And of the 1,200-plus people that I've now interviewed personally about what matters most in church life, the one that always comes up, and 95% of the time it's number one with daylight second, is connection. People are so lonely. They come to churches like this just longing that someone would reach out enough and just shake their hand and ask them a question about their life. It mat- Destinies are formed in those moments. So if that's all you can ever do for the kingdom, say, God, I'm going to give you the next five or ten minutes. I'm going to reach out to someone I don't know. It changes their life. Please do that. And you can also, if you haven't got any time, please prayerfully consider your financial contribution. I didn't even raise this this morning. Um, but we just ask our regulars. We don't preach a money message. We, don't, we just don't do that kind of stuff. We just ask those who are regular and part of the tribe, just pray about that. Go away and pray what God would have you give financially and do it privately, do it online, not because we've coerced you or made you feel guilty on a Sunday. You do what God tells you to do. And I trust God in you enough to know that he'll meet all of our needs if all of our people are doing that. You know, some of us have been waiting for the perfect church. I've been waiting now since I was 19 years old. I'm 59 now, so do the sums. I just find whenever I turn up, I screw it up. It's not the perfect church anymore because I just arrived. So, but it becomes the perfect church. Any church can actually be the perfect church if we just give ourselves and play our part. 
without condition as unto the Lord. And we honour each other. We honour God by giving who we are into that place as, uh, as frail and temporal as it might be. So can I just pray for us tonight? It's a bit of a weird message, I know, but I'll close it there. We'll just have a bit of worship. And I think it's just a time where we can just celebrate this crazy thing called church and, um, and all that it can become. It's been, it's been confronted now more than it has in the last few hundred years. Church is under more pressure than it's ever been. But I think it's a good thing. I think it's going, we're going to reform what it means. And God's people, it's not going to be a spectator sport anymore. It's going to be the church rising up to be who it's meant to be. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for each one who's, who's chosen to call this their church home. I thank you for those who haven't, because not every church is for everyone all the time. But we thank you that, Lord, you're doing something special here in the hearts of our people. We're seeing so many equipped and grown and repaired and prepared for ministry, that we've recruited pastors from inside our ranks, that so many are rising up, that people are being healed and your spirit's moving in their life and we're seeing miracles and we're seeing gifts of the spirit breaking out in people's lives. It's like the Kenmore version of the book of Acts. But Lord, we know there's so much more. So Lord, all we do is just lay our hands and our hearts open. We don't put conditions on it. But Lord, show us what part we can play. Whether there's a role or a title or a job description attached to that or not, I can always be who you've designed me to be because it's Christ in us that's a hope of glory. So, Father, I pray that you'd release your church to be your church. Define it in a whole new way for this mad day that we're part of right now, full of disruption and all this stuff. Let the very best of who your people are come to the surface and let this incredible enterprise, the church of Christ, let it rise up and let it glorify you. Let the manifold wisdom of God be seen through the faces and the hands in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, God. 